and grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to start this evening. Um, as we end this series that we've been in, we've been in a series called Abundant Valley, and we've really just been beginning the conversation around uh, God's intention to prosper a place, to prosper a people, and uh, just kind of what the implications of those uh, realities are. As we end this series, tonight may be a little clunky. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, there's a lot that I want to share with you pastorally. I think, if anything, this isn't like a, I don't know how much teaching there will be in this. This is a lot of just a pastoral word for our church, um, and, and kind of a shift that's taking place in my heart and my mind around uh, some specific subjects that I want to see our church take a shift in as well. Um, I want to talk about three different concepts, and I think these three different concepts, there's a lot of overlap between the three of them, and you're going to see that they're really all a part of the same theme, but tonight I want to talk about promotion, I want to talk about reward, I want to talk about excellence and the very blatant fact that God wants his people to prosper. So um, if you're not there, Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 is uh, where we're going to begin. Um, now this subject is a, a little bit of a tricky subject. Uh, prosper sounds a lot like prosperity, which sounds a little too close for comfort to prosperity gospel. You're like, is he going to say what I think he's going to say? Um, <laughs> There have been a lot of abuses in the past. Uh, there have been many pastors who have made health and wealth the primary pursuit of their ministry. Uh, promises of material wealth in exchange for piety as though God were some sort of cosmic vending machine. It's a mistake. There have been people uh, who are swindlers ever read that like in 1 Corinthians 6, neither will swindlers inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're like, who's a swindler? Uh, there are swindlers who try to actually take money from people by putting on a disguise of holiness or righteousness, saying the right things, doing the right things, saying the right kind of prayers in order to get money. I, I was just watching this old, it was, it's comical now, but this old uh, televangelist video online the other day, and uh, he, this guy's like promising, he's like, I will give my favorite tie to whoever donates right now, you gotta do it right now, $10,000 to my ministry, you get the tie. And then he's like, well, maybe not this tie, but you'll get one of my other favorite ties, okay? <laughs> um, and, and, and I was just reading in, in BBC, on BBC's website uh, today, there was an article about poor people giving what little they had to someone who used it to fly on a private jet. It's weird. <laughs> The message in this camp is that wealth equals righteousness. The more wealthy you are, it's, a, it's evidence of your righteousness. But, but think about this. If that was the case, why was Jesus likely homeless, most certainly was not rich, and yet we all could agree he was pretty righteous? The other side of the pendulum, the other problem, is that in an attempt to shy away from some of these abuses, there's been an overcorrection. Uh, particularly, there was a move in the early 2000s within evangelicalism that sprouted from short-term missions and, and really just the church emerging into a global Christianity that made Christians feel guilty for the money and the wealth that they had. And so, I mean, I, I'm sure there's a number of you in the room, you went on the mission trip and you're like, I'm giving it all away when I get home. Like, wow, this is crazy. I'm, I feel so guilty. And, and the message is that the real problem with the world is wealth inequality. 
and that owning anything of any kind is incompatible with the way of Jesus. I had a friend of mine text me last week and she said, um, she said, I just got in this weird conversation with somebody that said it's wrong for Christians to own homes. I'm like, oh, wow, I've never heard that take before, but we had an interesting conversation around that. And in this camp, the view is this. Poverty equals righteousness. But think about this. If that's the case, then why didn't Jesus ask Zacchaeus to give everything that he had to those who he had defrauded, not just the 50% that he voluntarily chose to give? I think we need a robust theology around material. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, and if you're familiar with Genesis, you know exactly where this is going. Genesis 1:31 after God has made a bunch of different things from land to water to plants to animals to the crown of all creation humanity. He says this, God saw all. <laughs> God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. When Jesus showed up on the scene, his message wasn't this. Hey, I'm here to take you to heaven while all this evil material around you burns up. His message wasn't even, I'm here to get you to behave correctly and to get rid of all those material possessions so that you can be holy. Jesus' primary message and method was that the kingdom of God is here. Now, ultimately, the kingdom of God is a physical representation of heaven here on earth. If just in a short description of like you've heard about the kingdom, maybe you've even read Jesus, he comes and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom? It is a physical representation of heaven here on earth. And Jesus spent the majority of his ministry focused on the earthly effects of heaven coming. When we read about Jesus and we think that Jesus is only concerned with the spiritual side of things, we miss all of the earthiness of Scripture. There's a lot about the earth in the Scriptures. Genesis 1, it says it was good. Sometimes, I've been there, we forget that material was God's idea. It was his idea. God loves material and ultimately is interested in redeeming it, not destroying it. That's the story from a garden to a garden, Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. The earth gets remade, it gets remodeled, stripped down to the studs and rebuilt. So many implications in that. But this is a theme throughout the entire Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. If you had gone to an ancient Jew and you had said to them, um, hey, look, there's gonna be a Messiah, he's gonna come and he's gonna get you out of here to go to heaven, they would have been like, What? Because all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, what did they talk about? They said that justice looked like Egypt beginning to serve Israel rather than Israel having to serve Egypt. It's incredibly earthy. The wealth of nations being brought to Israel and just given to them. It's like, open your gates wide and the wealth of the nations are going to be given to you. Eating fine foods, growing good wine, the Old Testament is replete with these incredibly earthy examples of what salvation would have meant to the Israelite mind. Now, you fast forward to Jesus, and Jesus, he talks about material a lot. He talks about money frequently. In the Gospels, I had to look this up. An amazing one out of 10 verses deal directly with the subject of money. One out of 10. 
That's 280 verses in all. And the, the problem for humanity isn't that there is material and that some people own that material, but in what we think that material can do for us. The problem is that we often think material can do more for us than he can. You remember in Genesis chapter 3, Eve, she eats the fruit because it appeared that it could give her what in reality only God could give her. She looks at the fruit and it promises this God-like status. It promises, wow, that's pleasing to the eye. That's, I think that's desirable for gaining wisdom. And it's material that promises to do too much that is the issue for humanity. And this is the temptation for every person down throughout history. Have you placed your trust more in material or in God's provision? It's the question for all of us, especially in a wealthy nation like the one that we live in. See, material wealth needs discipleship in order to be stewarded correctly. When Jesus sent out 72 of his disciples, uh, look at what happens. This is at Luke chapter 10, so earlier chronologically. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. In other words, do, do the, uh, the ascetic thing. You don't need any material possession. Just go out just as you are. But then again, when he sends them out, the second time in Luke 22, it says this. He said to them, but now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Why? Why is there a discrepancy between these two instances? Could it be that Jesus is trying to take his disciples on a journey where they learn to keep primary the pursuit of the kingdom, and by doing that, we as disciples learn to steward material correctly? Could it be that as the first time they go out and they, they make the, the kingdom their primary pursuit and the next time Jesus says, okay, now you have the ability to steward material and so take it with you in this case. See, it's on this narrow road that disciples find the ability to handle God's rewards. Do you guys know that God wants to reward you? It's kind of a controversial topic, but it really shouldn't be. Matthew chapter 19 says this, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Or, or Matthew 6, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you, your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Interesting. Ne next slide. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. There seems to be in the text this discipleship reality where God rewards kingdom focus. Where he finds kingdom focus, he rewards publicly and physically. The reality is this, God rewards those who choose the cross. God rewards those who choose the cross. We've got to talk about reward and promotion. Here's the situation. Jesus doesn't require of his people anything that he didn't do, right? Some nods would be helpful. He doesn't require anything that he doesn't do. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, tough crowd tonight. It's all good. Oh, we're just getting, we're just getting started. Uh, the way of the cross is the way of complete surrender. 
When you're invited into Jesus, you're invited into the way of the cross. Peter, uh, speaking in Acts, this is what uh, he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Peter is giving the very first sermon, and he's preaching this sermon to this crowd of people. And notice the language, God has raised this Jesus to life. Now, what does it mean (laughs) if Jesus didn't raise himself? Have you ever thought about that? Like, did Jesus raise himself, or did God raise Jesus? How did it work? What if Jesus didn't raise himself? What if God raised him? It means that Jesus was primarily concerned with the dying and he left the resurrection up to God. His primary concern in life was the dying and he was gonna leave the resurrection up to God if God raised him from the dead. We see this in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. What is that? My concern is the dying, your will be done. This is a photo I got. I was uh, reorganizing our, our library. We have all these books and we have all these old Bibles. And this is from a Bible that was given to some, I don't even know where you got this Bible, babe, but it was given to uh, some young woman in the 1940s. I don't know if it was your grandma or not, but anyway, um, this was one of the photos in that Bible. And I just thought this perfectly exemplified this willingness to leave resurrection up to him. Just he's being, this is Jesus being taken down from the cross and these people supporting him, surrendering himself over whatever happens, happens. Isn't that just such a striking photo? This single-mindedness, this focus, this narrow road of discipleship is the call for every person. It's our job to die, it's his job to resurrect. The way of the cross, next slide. The way of the cross is saying no to something that I may naturally be able to do so that an occasion is created for him to do something that he naturally can do. We're looking for opportunities as disciples to say no to specific things in our lives to create space for him to say yes. Is that making sense? (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna try over here. In the life of a disciple... Our job is to try to create space in our life for him to do what only he can do. I like this side. Sometimes we think that the life of a disciple is to come and to read our Bibles and to worship on Sundays and then just to try to get out there, work super hard, and get yours. No, the filter is Jesus left the dying. He said, my primary focus is the dying. His primary job is the resurrection. Have you guys ever had a a great idea for a present for someone for their birthday or for Christmas and you're just like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be the best present ever and you're scheming about it. You're like, I don't even care how much it costs. This is gonna blow their minds. And then uh, like a couple weeks before their birthday, they go out and buy the thing that you wanted to buy them. Have you ever had that happen before? You're like, okay. So there it goes. Even if I like say, hey, I was gonna get that for you. They're like, okay, sure, yeah, thanks. What can happen is we can see what we believe we need, and especially when we have the means, or if it's relatively attainable with hard work, we end up pulling a future blessing into the present, but from a place of lack instead of from a reward from God. We can go, 
oh, I need that reward, and I'm going to go get it for myself rather than create space in my life. My job is to the, to the, to the dying. My job is to seek first the kingdom so that he can give me everything that's added, so that he can, in due time, pour out what he knows that I can handle. See, oftentimes we'll find that when we go out and we get the reward for ourselves and we work super hard and we get the house or we get the car or we get whatever it is for you and you go get that material thing, it ends up being a curse rather than a blessing because now your focus is, is not, wow, what a great God you are. It's how do I protect it? Uh, this, this past week, I feel like, um, I think we'll probably talk about this in the future, uh, the coming weeks, but... Um, I feel like the Lord is just really taking me on like this personal journey with him uh, in a way that I don't think it's ever been this laid out in the past. Um, there's some specific, I, I, this is about a month ago, I, he, he challenged me to write down everything that I fear. Have you ever done that? Um, just write down everything that you fear. What are your biggest fears? And so I wrote down all of the fears and I could just see how those things had become the motivating factors for most everything in my life. And I, I, so I wrote these things down, and, and I just said, God, I just want my motivations to be love. <laughs> I don't want them to be fear. There's two, Kanye West, everybody said it best. It's either fear or it's love. And, and I, seriously, I was like, I want my motivations to be love. And so he's just taking me on this journey. I wake up every morning, and I do this, um, I do this thing where I just write my daily honesty. I'm just like, honestly, this is where I'm at today. Not to stay there, but so that it can be exposed that you can tell me the truth. Here's my honesty, but I'm not interested in my truth. I'm interested in the truth, so give me the truth. Um, and part of this, what I do is, is I, I wake up and I set a little timer on my phone for 10 minutes to just have like free thinking sort of a thing. And as I was doing this, I, I just said, okay, God, I... Um, I want to memorize scripture again. I want to have the, the word of God just on the tip of my tongue at all times. And so one of the passages that I've been just meditating on and thinking about in this, these 10 minutes that I have is, is Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He refreshes my soul. And I remember I, 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 this morning, I was just sitting there doing this uh, practice and I just thought he restores my soul. I don't restore my soul. He restores my soul. It's my willingness to die to self that positions me for the green pastures. Otherwise, there's too many opinions about which path to take. It's my job to say, you restore my soul. You lead me beside still waters. You lead me to the green pastures, so I'll do the dying. I will do the dying. Now, um, when you do that dying, he's, what does he say in the text? He's faithful to reward. He's faithful to promote. Now, the, the other issue that we face when we're talking about promotion is what happens when you witness the promotion of someone else who you don't think deserves it. Turning your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 20. Um, we're going to spend some time in Matthew this evening. There's, there's a couple great parables just right in a row. Matthew chapter 20, uh, and we'll be in verse 1. Many uh, have thought that this passage endorses socialism and that the point of this is uh, kind of Jesus is a socialist and he's trying to create this socialist utopia. I had a lot of buddies of mine in Portland who thought that was the interpretation of this text. Um, but I actually think it's much deeper than that. Uh, it says this in verse one, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. 
He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. Verse six, about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? I lost my place. <laughs> oh, where are we? Verse seven, there we go, thank you. Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going to the first. Now, notice that order, it's important. Verse nine, the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. They thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be awesome. He's in a good mood today. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Am I not being, un am I being unfair to you, friend? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money, or are you envious because I am generous? Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. If this passage were about socialism... Jesus would have paid the workers who had worked the whole day first so that they could go rest their tired feet, kick back at home, and watch some TV. But instead, he starts with the last. Why? So that he can make everybody else witness his unreasonable generosity. This passage is not about some kind of like Jesus gives everybody the same thing. It's teaching a lesson that Jesus reserves the right in the kingdom to bless who he chooses to bless. And are you envious because he's generous? <laughs> Gosh. Are you offended by the blessing? Because if you are, you may choose to work somewhere else. The point is, is that it was their ability to witness his unreasonable grace that positions them for the same sort of blessing in their own life. It's your ability to look at the promotion of another and to say, I don't think they deserve it, but that's what you say, so I'm gonna agree with you and I'm gonna bless them as well that actually keeps you on the same vineyard so that you never know when he will choose to promote you or bless you. Uh, Jacob, our worship uh, pastor, frequently reminds me that many love in the church when they see the person seeking first the kingdom and making the big sacrifice. It's like that person's just giving everything for the Lord. Or you hear about the story of the missionary living in the jungle, giving what they had to live on just to, just to, to give it all to God. Many love that story, but many are uncomfortable when everything is added to that person. They love it when they're seeking first the kingdom, but they're not so okay with it when Jesus fulfills his promise and adds everything else. Are you envious because he's generous? When everything is added to another, how do you respond personally? Maybe there's somebody who's coming to mind right now. That'd be fun. When that other person gets what you want, sometimes it's exactly what you want, and you're like, they don't even want that like I want it. I want that so much more than them. What happens to your heart? 
This is the truest test of your beliefs about his goodness. <laughs> it says in the scriptures that God is not a respecter of persons, which means that he doesn't play favorites. And if he's a good father who gives good gifts, it's not our job to decide who gets the gifts. It's our job to submit ourselves. We'll do the dying, you do the resurrecting. See, the key to me having the heart who can bless who God is blessing is to keep the priority of the kingdom so strong and stable that no personal reward could distract me. The moment that I turn my attention from the king and his kingdom to the rewards of my past choices, I lose both. And competition seeps in as I look around to the people around me to compare what I've been given to what they have been given. So let me ask you this. Which kind of blessing tastes better? The kind that you fought for or the blessing that someone else fought for for you? See, whatever you fight for in this life, you have to keep fighting for to keep. But whatever you receive from the Father, you're free to enjoy or to let pass on to another. When, when I complicate my life with my striving for what I want, it becomes more and more difficult to discern where the blessing that I have in my life actually came from. It's like, oh, I worked super hard for that, and God blessed me. Okay, but which is it? And what Jesus is doing through this parable is he's recalibrating our hearts and our relationship to material things and he's saying it all comes through relationship with the king to put the kingdom as the primary desire of your life and to leave the blessing up to him. That is, what, that is the theology of reward and promotion. Now, what is very interesting to me at least is that part of our discipleship is also the response to what he gives. When he does give the thing, how do you steward it? I wanna talk a little bit about excellence, excellence in everything. Um, next slide, I think we have a photo of a book that I, I, I read recently. Uh, this is this book about this guy named Robert Irwin who, um, he was an artist in the mid-century and just did like some really amazing kind of installation work. A lot of like work with shadows and lines and uh, just some and, and light. It, it was really cool. And this is the, one of the, one of his books. Um, seeing is forgetting the name of the thing one sees. It's just kind of on a philosophy of art. And uh, in this book, it tells a story of how he did this particular piece of art. Next slide. Um, he made these discs that kind of almost blend into the wall that they're set upon, but they're made out of metal and wood and, and sometimes like a mesh screen. And uh, actually, the Portland Art Museum has one in the modern uh, art section, so you can go there and you can check it out yourself. But uh, they, they sit on these walls, and as you look at them, you kind of get lost in them, and that's why people were really attracted to them. It's like, wow, there's something about this that's so excellent. Um, when he talked about building these discs, it said that uh, the back of the disc is completely closed. There's, there's no way to see behind the disc or anything like that. But um, the framework of the disc, he used like the, the most precious woods that he could find. And, and, he, and he, he like spent days sometimes just, just doing the inside framing of these discs that eventually he would put a cover on and nobody would ever see. Why? Why would he do that? Excellence. Because there's something about being excellent with the things that we've been given. With that in your mind, let me ask you a question. Do you, do you guys think that you can love people more than you love God? It's not a trick question. Do you think you can love people more than you love God? Yeah, totally. Like, there's oftentimes I'm like, I think I may love my wife more in this moment. Uh, all the time. It's very easy to put an individual before God. 
to put the opinion of an individual before God. Um, but can you put God before people? Yeah, you can. Uh, have you ever met somebody who puts God before people? Not super fun to be around. <laughs> you're like, you don't like, you're like, they're like, I love God. Don't know about these people you made over here. Not, not such a fan. Um, but the Bible teaches us this, that our love for God is shown by our love for people. So let me ask you this. Can you put possessions before God? Oh yeah, we've all been there. <laughs> like, I can think of all the possessions I'm putting before God right now. Uh, yeah, absolutely. The house, the car, the, the spouse. Like, it's easy to put possessions before God. Uh, can you put God before possessions? <laughs> I think so. Why? Flip over to Matthew chapter 25. You're like, he's a heretic. Hang on, hang on. Matthew chapter 25. Verse 14, it says this. Again, it will be like, he's describing the kingdom, a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you've entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five bags more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So, so I was afraid and, and I went and hid your gold in the ground. See, see, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received it back with 0.0003% interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. Whoa, that's unfair. That's not equity. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our discipleship is shown physically through my choices and my stewardship of the material that God has given me. That was better news than, uh, than your reaction. <laughs> okay. It's not righteous to ignore privilege. There's a theme in our culture today that says that privilege is what's wrong. It isn't righteous to ignore privilege. 
it isn't righteous to not leverage what we have. Our job, regardless of what's in our hands, is to increase what we have been given. So what do you have? What have you been given? Your job is to increase it. Now for everybody, it's gonna look a little bit different, but we are to love God through the way we love possessions. We are to love God through the way we steward what we have been given. It's not to worship those things because ultimately they belong to him. He's coming back and he's gonna, make, he's gonna take an account. 1 John 4.17 says this, as he is, so we are in this world. What does that mean? As he is, so we are in this world. What it means is not as he was, so we are in this world. That would be crazy enough. It's as he is currently reigning from heaven, so we are in this world. We are to be the revelation of royalty here on earth. How is he in heaven? How does he rule and reign in heaven? What is his mindset in heaven? There is a spiritual reality that must be seen physically, and we express that reality through the way we steward creation, through the way we steward our homes, through the way we steward our cars, through the way we steward relationships. I can't think of a better story from our shared Christian heritage that expresses this reality than that of the Clapham sect. Just by a show of hands, anybody ever heard of the Clapham sect before? Uh, one, yes. <laughs> oh, this is gonna be great. You guys are gonna love hearing about these guys. Uh, the Clapham sect were a group of people that lived in London in the 1700s, 1780s through, 18, through the 1840s. Uh, they were a group of wealthy men and women who lived in London whose entire worldview was that the kingdom must expand through this, the excellence in vocation. The kingdom has to expand through our excellence and our vocation. They spent their time leveraging their privilege. What privilege do we have? Many of them working in parliament. Okay, that's our privilege. How do we leverage it on behalf of justice? How do we leverage that on behalf of flourishing the community that we live in? Um, they're most known, the Clapham sect, they're most known for their abolition of the slave trade in England, led by William Wil Wilberforce. Look at this great photo of Wilberforce there. Isn't that a good one? I was so stoked to find this one for you guys. Uh, in addition to just, oh, no simple task, abolishing the slave trade in England, they made it their aim to teach England manners again. Isn't that great? We could use some manners, maybe, to teach England manners. And, and what they meant by that is morality. Uh, in a time, this is particularly what they focused on, in a time when fathers weren't really known for spending any time with their children, their children were raised by nannies or the mother if they didn't have uh, wealth, the influential men, these parliament leaders, these people, one of the wealthiest men, men in London at the time was a part of the Clapham sect. Um, they made it their aim to spend time with their children and to shape them in godliness by the time that they spent with them. Just like I want to be excellent in my work, I want to be excellent in my home. Have you, I don't know, I'm type A, I'm like really just like an entrepreneur, go-getter, and I know there's many of you in the church who are as well, but have you ever thought about taking that entrepreneur spirit that you have and applying it to the home? You're coming up with all these creative ideas for work, but what if you thought of creative ideas for the home? 
They also took care to pray for one another's vocations and different situations that were coming up. In the book Seven Men, uh, Eric Metaxas says this about their group. In the mornings, they would gather for breakfast and prayer, and whenever an important bill or issue was being worked on, they would pray together for strength and wisdom. Just this, do you want to be a part of that? Just a beautiful community coming around one another and just saying, what are you working on? How do we go towards excellence in that? See, these people, they saw their lives differently than many see their lives. Here's how most people see their lives. Many only see what they lack. And so they live in reaction to what others have and what others are doing. Every action in their lives is a reaction out of lack. And it doesn't matter if they make more money the next year than they did the previous year. There's always somebody in front of them who they can measure themselves again and say, see, I lack. But there is an entirely different way to live that is kingdom-minded, and it's to spend time thinking and focusing on the surplus that you have been given and to think creatively about how you have been given the privilege to increase and influence the world through excellence. Do you just take, have you ever done this? Just take an inventory of what you have. Just take an inventory of what your privilege is. And instead of getting guilty about it, just start scheming. Okay, how can I leverage that? What can I do with this? You know what guilt does? When you look at your life and you go, oh, I really shouldn't have all this. Look at that person. They have nothing. You know what it does? It makes you just, it, it, at the very best, you bury what you have, you hide it from other people, or you get resentful and you go, why should they be so, you know, I don't want to feel guilty about this. I'm done feeling guilty. But gratitude has an ability to sanctify the material that you have, the privilege that you have in such a way that it, it pushes you into excellence. Oh, I'm so grateful for what I've been given. I'm going to now leverage this on behalf of that person or behalf of that people group. You don't have to be rich to change the world. Remember, Jesus and his disciples, they turned the world upside down and very few of them would have called themselves wealthy. Some of them would, but very few. But you do have to take what you have and increase it through excellence. Now, to end, I just want to talk a little bit about contentment as we close out. And I know it was kind of jumbled, but there's just a lot of ideas that I wanted to get out there to you guys. You know, this series that we've done on a, called Abundant Valley is really a series on gratitude. I, I wanted to set time aside to just take a look at what we have and to become a grateful church. One of the natural results of gratitude will always be contentment. Someone who has really placed the discipleship journey at the highest place in their life, someone who has really chosen to die to self and to follow Christ and leave resurrection up to him will always exhibit contentment, always. Being content, it's not ceasing dreaming. You're not like, okay, I'm gonna give up the dream of owning a home someday or I'm gonna give up the dream of having that degree someday or that job or I'm gonna give up the dream of, of driving that car. It, it, it's not that. It's not, it's, being content isn't hitting yourself every time you want something. Being content is just refusing to allow lack to be the defining factor of your life. Refusing to allow lack to be the defining factor of your life. Contentment isn't putting away dreaming, it's just letting go of the dreams that cause anxiety. Because those are the dreams that are combating with his lordship. Uh, I, I was walking, I chose to walk here today, uh, and I got sweaty. Uh, I was walking, and I was just praying for different homes as I was walking, uh, for, and, and just what was on my heart was just that they would become joy centers. Just, God, would you just bless that home, and just would joy be the primary marker of the people who live there? Would, every, would anybody who walks through that door, they would just really ex experience joy. 
Um, joy can only exist in an environment where contentment is present. Anxiety and contentment don't mix. One of our core values is that we're a people filled with hope and joy. So I think from all that we've read today and from all that we've talked about today, if there's one key to joy, it's this, giving. It's giving. I don't care if you give to our church ever. I don't care. But you gotta give. You gotta give to someone. There's a joy cycle. I don't know if this is helpful, but here it is. (laughs) There's giving in secret. There's forgetting about the reward. All of a sudden, God, because he's faithful, reward comes, and then it's time to give again. You want joy, this is the cycle. You want joy, this is the path. It's dying to self, saying, I won't go get all that I could with my income, and instead I'm gonna choose to give. It doesn't matter if you reward me or not, my reward is being with you. God just so happens to be so good that he adds physical reward on top of it, and then all of a sudden you have a surplus, and it's time to give out of that again. This is the narrow road of discipleship, and this is the way that we steward what we have been given, because this is the life that lives without lack. And that's my prayer for you. Let's stand.